I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today is Mark Thomas Shaw. He is joining me as a guest, and I've been introduced to Mark's work through Clint Sabom and Contemplative Light and all the work that they do there through their resources and lessons and, and their podcast. And today I'm going to be talking with Mark about Dante's Road, the journey home for the modern soul. Thank you so much, Mark, for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Lisa. It's good to be on the spark. <laughs> Maybe you can tell people a little bit about what Contemplative Light is and, and what some of the things that you offer before we jump into your book. Sure. So, so Clint and I met actually online um, a while back. It, we were both uh, active in the blog space in, in the contemplative circles and found just kindred spirits in each other and had lengthy conversations over the phone and just wanted to get a nonprofit started as a kind of collective of contemplative uh, teachers and writers to, to pool our time and resources uh, and to get the message out a on on practices to enter into the contemplative space and make a kind of transition uh, of consciousness in a way but then also have ongoing practices to help cultivate that and extend that and so that's grown into uh, this interfaith community of uh, contemplative teachers and writers and we wrapped up a, a course on the Christian mystics um, last year and the year before that had a course on the, on contemplative practices, sort of five different paths into the divine space. Um, and, uh, Clint just let me know he posted, I believe on, on Facebook, but also on our list. So either way you want to sign up for that. There's a Lenten, um, special right now with 75% off all mm. kind of site wide on, on our teachable courses through contemplative light. Mm. Yeah, I've really enjoyed those ones. Um, I've seen several of them, several of the videos, and I think they're very meaty and especially the um, church history, which I have had some education on, but not as thorough as not as um, not as uh, many people covered, I, I should say, as as you guys did. So that was has been really great. Oh, great! Yeah, um, and then. For your book here, is this is this your first book, or where does this fall in the lineup of things that you've been doing? This is so. This is the um, the first fully published book of my own original writing. We have a collection of sayings out from called the uh, 150 Meditations from the World's Mystics, just published recently through the Contemplative Light Press with uh, just a short intro by me, but we wanted to be as hands-off as possible and let just those speak for themselves and have a lot of white space of, of um, a kind of cor correlating to the, the silence that just would let those speak to people. So for my, mm -hmm. yeah, original work, um, besides the, the regular blog posts, um, this, is, this is the first book-length um, publication, yeah. And one of the premises of your book is that we are lost and we are trying to find our way home or we're heading on a journey home. And could you talk about the correlation between what Dante talks about and then what you're getting at in the book? Absolutely. So 
as I touch on kind of all over the place in the introduction and in, in the, the video and in the, in the landing page, I, I was about, let's see, 20. And I grew up in Germany in the missions field and had moved back to the States. And there's this reverse culture shock. I'd been there about a year and a half. And my just completely disoriented is the word that comes to mind in hindsight. And my girlfriend's in Australia. My parents and brother are in Germany. Um, and my friends are scattered to the four winds from this international school going to England and the East Coast and, and uh, wherever else, taking a gap year in India. And so I'm, I'm just kind of um, looking to find my footing and I'm sitting in this college course and trying to find an identity and direction and meaning. And um, this world literature course was on the Odyssey by Homer, mm -hmm. the Divine Comedy, the Brothers Karamazov, and had a, a book of poetry interspersed from Cheslav Miloš called the, A Book of Luminous Things. Mm -hmm. And I... I been like a, just a basketball player. You know, I, I was an athlete in high school. I didn't really have much of a, a it, really an academic or artistic interest. And that kind of was, was this pivotal moment for me, this inflection point where uh, that statement connected to these classical works. I'd kind of gone into the class feeling like, well, this is going to be a drag. You know, I'm going to have to force myself to to enter into this space and, and, um, you know, slog my way through these arcane texts. Mm -hmm. And instead it just made it extremely present right off the bat and essential, mm -hmm. uh, by saying we're lost, we're trying to get home. And that is the enduring question that the great, um, that's our, our human condition. Mm -hmm. That's our spiritual condition this sense of in the biblical exile, how do we get home and making that intimate spiritual personal connection made this sort of essential reading. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning and first thing I'd want to know, what does Homer say is the way home? Mm -hmm. How can I interpret this? It's kind of this mythological reading mm -hmm. that personalizes the text in uh, to a great extent. So um, and come to find out later, this professor had actually, uh, previously trained with father Thomas Keating and was a presenter of centering prayer mm -hmm. and was very much on that same path and was, was reading the text through that lens of the personal journey, the journey home to God. And so, mm -hmm. um, I, I, that became uh, a starting point, uh, mm -hmm. a portal into the, the contemplative path. And throughout the book, you sort of detail some of um, the journey that Dante takes through um, the levels of hell and purgatory and up the mountain. And I hadn't ever read it. So I was like, oh, this is going to be good because it's like my cliff notes. You know? <laughs> I don't actually have, I don't have to read it. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was really interesting. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, our journey too, and through suffering and through seeing ourselves, uh, seeing our twisted um, and thoughts and our wounds and things like that. And then you parallel it to 
an imagined journey we might take in our own journey um, to healing and wholeness and union with God. Um, and then as we're kind of coming into Easter time, you, you talk about the paschal mystery, and it's not around suffering or above suffering. It's right straight through. Maybe you can talk a little about that. Yeah, so it, it strikes me that, that that Paschal mystery connecting to that root word of Pasco of, of suffering, and I grew up in a, in a um, like an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal tradition where it was very sort of mm-hmm. triumphalist, mm-hmm. Right. and there always struck me to be that gap of mm-hmm. the rhetoric and the 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 celebration in worship. And it it struck me at some point, there was some emotional high in that experience Mm -hmm. that was potentially even addicting, Mm -hmm. but you, the pieces didn't quite fit when you saw, wait a second, we we feel like we're a chosen people, we're separate. And and there's a a little bit of self-righteousness baked into that. But, um, that person just got uh, a divorce because they were cheating and that person just left their wife and kids and that person was caught with embezzlement and and mm-hmm. and this person is um, you know just uh, down and out or depressed but all of that was kind of quickly swept under the rug or acknowledged or given short shrift versus acknowledging the 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 response always seemed to be well we need to do more um, you know, emotional high worshipful uh, experiences or events or more scripture reading or just, you know, alignment with a moral center. Well, uh, that was always the prescription. The brokenness is not really addressed the woundedness. Uh, exactly. And so I, it, it just was struck me as so intuitively true by you know, early adulthood, that the people who exuded a combination of wisdom and warmth and a kind of openness, transparency, mm-hmm. that those those people had all undergone some profound confrontation, processing, and relinquishment uh, within uh, of their own suffering. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a pattern I recognized mm-hmm. to figures that I either uh, sought out as mentors or sort of wished I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the the wisdom seemed to come from suffering itself, mm-hmm. and uh, such a a a countercultural truth. Mm-hmm. Now, in for your your English, you know, lit major introvert. That, that can also, that the awareness of that can can become its own sort of ego attachment. Mm. I get something, and so do these super smart people, but a lot of these schmucks over here don't can't follow this logic or mm. undergo this difficult path quite like I can. Mm. And it becomes another layer uh, that at some point has to be relinquished and we can substitute the idealization of suffering with the transformation of suffering. 
Yeah, you you talk about um, dying to false self, that the journey, that's what much of the journey is about, these identities that we've picked up from core wounds that maybe we're not even aware of. And, and sometimes our piety is even one of these identities, like I'm, I'm a good person who, who doesn't do wrong things, or I'm, I'm a smart person, or I'm a person who gets along with people, or, you know, <laughs> whatever it could be. But, you know, that's really easy to grab onto something and attach to it and think of it as, um, you know, some kind of prize thing you have to hang on to. And then when it's mm. threatened, uh, things can really spin. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a, a line that, that comes to mind often from a uh, another. Uh, I was in a, a social work program for a while, and a one of the professors, almost from a sort of sociological, scientific point of view, said the assumption is always in in these studies that human behavior is purposive, yeah. and so everything we do has some kind of purpose to it. So the actions we take in a social setting, the things that we pursue is most often a means to an end. And that end, it struck me often is, um, you know, a, a sense of fulfillment, however, temporary, ultimately, we kind of put the pieces in place and position ourselves and, and hide certain parts of ourselves and feature and emphasize other parts of ourselves to acquire something. Um, and the, uh, the great teacher and contemplative and, and recently passed um, mm -hmm. Father Thomas Keating, the pieces fell into place just as I was kind of asking those questions. You know, why does there seem to be these, um, in my own life, these, a sense of frustration and resentment that I can never seem to quite get over the hump. Mm -hmm. And in, it, also our, our different pursuits tend to come into conflict with each other, and whether it's in a marriage situation or a family situation or more broadly in, in society, the, you know, the current level of civil discourse. Mm -hmm. And it, it strikes me that all of that can be traced back in some form to this unconscious level that we operate out of that is a, a, some core wound that is in us that is maybe, for Thomas Keating, he, he refers back to childhood development psychology and that there are in age you know, one, two, and three is kind of when those wounds can occur and, and we can kind of be stuck at that stage of development and we need to process through that um, and that it tends to have that pattern of safety and security and on one level, um, affection and esteem on another level and then power and control. And it just struck me how well that that maps to so many people I know that are involved in some sort of fulfillment project mm. that can be traced back to that. Um, they're trying to build a sense of security. Mm. They're, uh, they're trying to find affection and esteem. Mm. And so those become our, our programs for happiness, mm. 
that we the and the projects we pursue and the values we hold mm -hmm. and the communities we participate in mm -hmm. and the things that we give time attention and resources to mm -hmm. and then also the things that we are afraid of mm -hmm. that we build up walls against because it's a threat to that particular ego project either on a, an individual level or a collective level and that the the people we that we otherize that we um, you know in a from a dualistic perspective uh, sow the seeds of violence against tend to be because they pose some kind of real or imagined threat to that deeply and again sort of unconscious structural component of our makeup yeah so so for an, for example, um, I can think of someone I know in ministry who's just a wonderful person, but also has definitely wounds of affection and esteem. As as I must say, do I? <laughs> Core <laughs> wounds. Um, and so that's that's an attachment. Um, so things are attached to that service things and caring for others, all good things, um, but things that might um, be jarring and might be threatening or disoriented would be if someone doesn't realize um, what they've done to help out or um, mm. take being taken for granted or being um, misunderstood or you know something horrible like being gossiped about or something like that would seem like a real threat to hey I'm, I'm not that kind of person um, <laughs> and then that's what's interesting of course is that the ego isn't isn't us, so we've attached to something that, that can't really be the, the authentic us. It's still false, and I think that's what's that's kind of hard for us to understand what false self is and why it can fall away. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can explain a little bit about why these things are are part of our lives and so close to us and so so much a part of our thoughts, but actually can can actually fall away. Some of that is the way in which um, w the the symbols that we project in the world that are ex ego extensions. It's almost like uh, the branches of a tree, and it's the root of it is is toxic and somehow poison. So the tree itself is sick, but we have these tendrils that reach out and still want some kind of light and life to feed that. And so from an uh, affection and esteem perspective, that can be any endeavor. It can be um, trying to connect with your partner and being ignored. It can be a book. It can be a blog post and, or and, and checking the numbers and, and kind of that insatiable need to be affirmed. And um, anything that is either frustrates that or is a block to that is is registered on a, a visceral level as the a, a threat and kind of the parasympathetic system changes the blood pressure rises it, it's it's like um, fight or flight response you know because on a psychological level to have that taken away 
the potential for permanent removal of the affirmation is like a death threat on the level of the ego. And so the, uh, uh, the process of, of entering into the contemplative space and saturating that in, in silence and paying attention to the thoughts that arise and allowing them to go away again is this, we call it like contemplative practice, but it's literally practice for the rest of life that you are allowing that thought to come, becoming aware of it, seeing it, recognizing it, and then allowing it to pass again. And in A, the awareness, but B, the experience of the rising and falling when you then are in those life situations where your own own ego centers are triggered and the fear comes up on a visceral level, over time you start seeing it happen just after it happened. And you see, oh, I know what just happened. I got angry and said something dumb because I felt my affection was being threatened or taken away entirely. My, my source of affirmation that whatever symbol I was attaching meaning to and investing meaning in in that moment was, was somehow blocked or obstructed uh, or threatened. And so um, you, over time, that, get, that time span gets reduced a little shorter, a little shorter, a little shorter. And then, and then you can start seeing it as it's happening. Oh, someone just said something callous mm -hmm. or, or slighting, and I just felt the emotion, and I'm going to watch it go away again. And that to, that, that to me is this measure of the contemplative mode and the contemplative effect and the contemplative life of coming to a space of, of a, 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 that deep level of self-recognition and self-awareness of the wound dynamic, that wound system, how it plays out within ourselves first. And then we look around and, and, and become far more gracious when it's happening in other people. And this, this blame and demonizing and, um, bickering and divisiveness and all these seeds of social ills in our society, we can trace back to that lack of awareness of where our wound is and the effect that it's had on how we are, our, our whole mode of being in the world. You talk about, um, you include a passage from the Bible that, that says perfect love casts out fear. And uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, as we make room for this divine love to come in and, and take root at the center, um, and then the fruit of the spirit is, the fruit of the spirit happens, which is, in fact, all the, the opposite things that happen when it, there's an ego threat. So it's like jealousy might come up or envy, mm. you know, but the opposite of all those things are, are all the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, I should say. Um and it's interesting because it can be, you can go from a point where everything's fight, flight, or freeze, and someone can say something and it's an 
feels like an existential threat in some way to your status or to your esteem. Right. And then you can go after practicing and creating space so that you realize all those thoughts I'm feeling, all those things that are being said are, are thoughts or opinions or mental forms. And, mm-hmm. and they can just have space between you and there's enough air around it. And you're like, well, there's like the kind of like, uh, there's a cloud going by, there it goes, you know? And, and it really is interesting because as you practice not attaching, um, like love makes space. I, I'm not, maybe not saying it as well as I should, but, but it's interesting how fear is cast out when there's more space and more space is created by, I think, presence. And you, you talk a lot right. about, um, you know, the, the stillness and um, apophatic theology and um, maybe some of the practices you could mention a little bit about how this space is created. How can we even get to a state where we aren't so attached to it? Sure. So, uh, first of all, I just uh, that image resonates so deeply with me. The the idea of of space figured as sky, mm-hmm. and an image that Anthony DeMello has of if your suffering is black paint, but your awareness is the sky, what is there for it to cling to? It's like throwing a a bucket of black paint up at the sky. There's nothing for it to, to attach onto. And that immediately the, the, the teachings of Christ come to mind of turn the other cheek if you're insulted because the insult doesn't land. There's, there's nowhere for it to stick to because it's not, there's no ego there for, to respond to it. And then the other kind of image that comes to mind is that resonated with me when I read that passage from DeMello was the, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens in Matthew, because they, it's, it's this gospel to the Hebrews primarily. And they, they, it's, you know, heresy to use the word or name of God. So they shift it from kingdom of God to kingdom of heaven. But that being this wide open, accepting, spacious, non-dual, non-tribal, you know, non-egocentric image. Um, And so the practices that help cultivate that are um, many. So one that, that kind of started it off for me before I even got into contemplative practices was just um, reading through the Psalms in the morning. And that was a kind of anchoring or grounding in a displacement of, um, you know, default, selfish, egoic concerns that are the first thing that we think of out of bed. Whatever is on my plate that day, whatever I'm concerned or worried about anymore, you know, check the email first thing, check the articles on the the um, apps that we have constructed in, in a way I think of, of however we construct our phones and our Facebook feeds and our, our computer, it's all personalizable. So in a way it's all just an extension of our own mental space and mental state. And, and, and so it, it, we kind of get um, wrapped in the, in, a, in this hall of mirrors 
like this mirror self that our consciousness is just reflected right back at us based on the, the, the triggers and mechanisms we've set up. And so to set that aside, put it in brackets, first thing in the morning, to have that shift in consciousness first and then approach all those things, it was this grounding practice. And so uh, once I'd read through the Psalms a couple times, um, I, I was still, I, I'd had this inner movement, but I was just in, in knots. And instead of clouds going by, it just felt like um, arrows flying, flying at me <laughs> all the time. Um, the, the life I had um, entered into was there was no escape from uh, ego threat. It was, it was ever present. The affection I felt I wasn't getting from my wife, the, the uh, uh, recognition I wasn't getting at work, the rest I wasn't getting when I got home, and that span was totalizing. And so, uh, and from a psychological perspective, an egocentric perspective, suffocating. And so this, the entrapment was so uh, present and confining and, and uh, visceral. And so the, the practice um, became breathing a different kind of air, like direct oxygen from a, a different source that was revitalizing and, you know, gave clarity of thought that wasn't almost at every moment preoccupied with um, my self-pity. And so uh, that shift of how, situating all of that frustration, resentment, failure within almost like holy water and and how allowing it to be transformed rather than fighting it, which seemed to only, you know, sink me deeper into quicksand. Um, and so Rhett would pray through the Psalms uh, as much as I could in the, in the mornings with my own quiet time would get up a little bit early. And then a friend, um, gave me like the, is it a, a six DVD set? on centering prayer from contemplative outreach. And it just so happened, um, my wife at the time was taking study leave and uh, was going to stay at a hotel and just like, you know, walk uh, by the water and, and be inspired and write sermons. And I had this week of tag along. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't want to bring any work, no books, no, nothing to chew on, just this DVD set. And so I would watch it, read a little, pray a little, and then practice being steeped in that silence as much as I could. And then I found in conversation with this friend when I got back home, he, he would take about four week-long retreats a year to a Vipassana retreat, a Zen center, wherever he could, as much as he could throughout the year. And the terminology he used was setting the practice. It was like that was, in a way, kind of 
cultivating that space, stamping down the grass internally for that radical week of practice, and it became home. And so the rest of the time, it wasn't this radical discipline to downshift into the contemplative space, but instead it was just re-entering the, the cultivated you know, new home from that week. And, and I come back to that a lot of making a some more intense practice throughout the year to then return to that that deeply cultivated silence becomes far more present and accessible in the daily practice of morning sit for 20 minutes, evening sit for 20 minutes. And one one thing we, we started contemplative light for, as I'm talking about the practices, is for you know, so much of this teaching comes from monastics. Mm-hmm. And there's almost a way to easily dismiss it. Well, yeah, if I lived in a retreat where everyone else was quiet all the time, I'd, I'd be, you know, cultivate silence too. <laughs> there are advantages to the lifestyle, but... Uh, I've got a, a six-year-old who didn't sleep his first four years, and I, I've got, you know, like many other Americans, I've got sleep apnea, and I've got, you know, a, a job with its own stressors and peaks and valleys, and and I've got to, you know, kind of bring up the rear with a lot of domestic labor when my wife works a lot, and uh, there's there's all of the normal everyday layperson things to juggle, and there are stretches when I, I don't have the time to practice. Sometimes at all, sometimes uh, the evening one, sometimes the morning one, an emergency will come up. Um, and if I have been in a regular rhythm and it's just a slight interruption, I'll almost overcompensate and be more aware throughout that day. But I do notice if it has to drag on for a week or two weeks, that that kind of seepage of awareness and being a little more, you know, shorter trigger and a little more irritable and so on. And so that there is a noticeable difference, I find. It's like weeding a garden. You, you stop weeding it and then <laughs> you, it's a practice that you have to keep up with. I know um, on, on one of the pages you talk about, um, as many wisdom teachers and mystics have pointed out, a thought or a doctrine can point toward the truth, but never is the truth. You say, great truths can be put into words, but the words aren't the truth itself. Jesus used, Jesus using the metaphor of the kingdom for this state of being, says the kingdom will not come with observable signs. Instead, it's a way of seeing, a way of being, transformed from the inmost self outward, fully awake. Um, and that's a really interesting, and um, for some people, that's a real revolutionary thought uh, it's, that might bump up against what they feel is their identity or is their way of life. And it has to do, I think, with going deeper down into truth in terms of experience, perhaps. Or maybe you can unpack that a little more as what you're explaining absolutely uh, and, and and even as uh, uh, with a caveat that um 
just like the quote <laughs> explain, yeah. explaining it, it's almost a fool's errand, mm -hmm. you know, because you're trying to put into words what what can't be described and 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 sort of is intuited. Mm -hmm. um, and and one of the things that becomes apparent after practice and in, in talking to a lot of the centering prayer presenters and in, in um a contemplative outreach and so on they say that the the there's some inflection point usually around the third year of practicing mm -hmm. and that the, the there's some kind of even deeper awakening into a broader presence of this kind that i'm, I'm attempting feebly to to describe there mm -hmm. and and that is the image that kind of helps me is a picture of the earth and kind of the, the zoom out from that. Mm -hmm. There's all this conflict and all the subtle details of our news cycles and all of world history and all the stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. But around that is this infinite space. And the the mind stuff, the opinions we have, the learning we have, our life histories, the, our, our personalities, our relationships, our, how, however we relate to all of those things, the opinions we have about them, the emotional responses we have, all of the sense we make of all of that can roughly all be bundled together under the heading of mind stuff. And that is culturally contextual, it's conditioned, it is finite, it's provisional. And whatever we can articulate in words and even thought is always bounded by and confined by the level of consciousness we have that is somehow connected to our cultural context. And so there is an inherent limitation there that if you try to solve your problems on the level of mind, you keep bumping up against that boundary. And it's the, that, the relinquishment of that and just allowing it to be becoming aware of it in the contemplative space that, you know, we have astrophysicists and so on that keep reminding us just how tiny this speck is of earth in the vastness of infinite cosmos. Mm -hmm. That's what it becomes to feel like is out the, the sense we make of things within the backdrop of this infinite love. Mm -hmm. And so especially when you're talking about that term kingdom, certainly I was raised like I said, in the missions field, evangelical Christianity, where conversion mm -hmm. is the primary goal. Mm -hmm. And there's a, um, an identification of um, kingdom with being a Christian, being saved, being a member and belonging to this tribe. Mm -hmm. And it, the, there's an, an intentionality, a kind of iconoclasm uh, mm -hmm. in that statement to expand that definition.
Well, I'm going to talk about something that, that you cover in the book when you talk about acceptance as a resignation. But for the people who aren't quite sure about what contemplative is, is all about, whether it's like, are we navel-gazing here when there's real suffering, real problems happening to real people? And we're saying, as we think about them and get anxious about them, um, that we're not, uh, if we if we just accept them, then we're not actually working to solve any of those problems. I know that you're not saying that, of course, but mm. but to the people who, who have the argument of um, where does action come in? What is what do we mean by acceptance? Um, maybe you can explain that. You, you say in your book, acceptance isn't resignation. It's just that choices don't come out of inner turmoil, but out of inner clarity. Yeah, the, the, I, I, the paradox is within the dissolution of the ego is still not this absence of selfhood so within our sky metaphor of of spaciousness that surrounds that there there seems to be still an inner alignment with you know instead of um, a moral truth as a principle or a value that we hold it's as if there are inherent and embedded within the DNA of, of creation, some sort of moral code, a sp spiritual moral uh, reality. And we become aligned with that, with call it a, a divine reality, a divine truth. And when we take action, out of in a full awareness in, in the contemplative space, there is an even greater authority in some ways, maybe even greater decisiveness um, when we're, we're acting out of cultivated awareness in silence that is sort of truth in action instead of the push-pull, the the stormy sea of ego reactiveness that mixes in our own uh, desires, hopes, tendencies, conditioning, our own egocentric f wish fulfillment processes that dilutes the water and makes us take action, you know, the right action for the wrong reasons sometimes or, or, or incorrect that was seen through the distorted lens. Um, maybe partial act action or less effective action than we might otherwise when there's that self-relinquishment. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's as if, you know, no longer I, but Christ in me, it's almost as if I'm being acted through instead of um, it, it being me and uh, wanting to take credit for it. Yeah, you mentioned in your book about having God back up your ego project, serve as backup. Um, you know, when people move in a direction and then um, decide that that must have been God's will or something. Um, mm -hmm. and, and really it was because it was going to look good on a resume or they could work with someone they wanted to work with. Not that there's anything to, wrong in itself with that, but it, if it's an ego project, then there's a lot to lose. 
personally and things mm-hmm. don't go your way or there's you know, people are a resource or a, a ladder to climb to get to your next thing. Yeah, I find the the um, it's so tricky, especially w- from within a religious context, to you know uh, ascribe this, that, and the other as being God's will, um, especially when someone hasn't done the work of going through a, th- a refinement process and becoming more and more aware of what their own processes, attachments, and ego center is, their own wound, um, and allowing that to be transformed. Well, I think about some of the, the great recent kind of public um, failures in leadership. It's, it's, there are many. We don't have to get into any of them specifically. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you, you talk about how this happens um, in community as well, and maybe you can describe a little bit of that. It's not just that contemplative practice is me and God, and we're just quiet together. What role does community play? I think um, the the part of the pitfalls are even in the contemplative space that um, that we are we after we experience changed that we are now changed and you can kind of r- relax and take your hands off the wheels I, I love the way you put it of stop you know doing the the work of pulling the weeds and that ongoing cultivation and the the crucible or the, the where the rubber hits the road oftentimes is in community. It's where we find an identity, um, either have a supportive role or an egocentric role. It's where we make mistakes and may need to apologize. Um, it's where kind of these dynamics play out and, um, you know the 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 joke in at least Eastern contemplative circles is oftentimes um, if you think you're so enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> that and are the communities even if we choose them can still have that dynamic involved. Them people are bringing all their business, their egocentrism, their flaws, whether it's a, a church community or a work community, whatever it is. Oh, it, the all of the things that that trigger our own issues—it's—it's it's all present, all that stuff, and so it's almost the the measure of is this genuinely transformational, or is it um, some some nice ideas? Right, that's a really good point. I mean, we can seem transformed if things are sort of to our liking, but then if. Um, we go back to, for instance, our old, um, we might go back to our old habits and patterns if we're with people who we have a history with or who we've had wound, wounding with mm. or who uh, have done something to us that we are bothered by. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> uh, you know, God forbid. Well, maybe you can talk a little bit about that in terms of deep time because you were, you were talking about deep time in your book and I thought um, that concept 
might be unfamiliar with people and if you could give them a taste of it. Um, there are so many things in your book that are it's so rich. I would love for everybody to, to buy your book. That's one of the concepts that I think is kind of revolutionary. So um, this is something that comes up a lot in monastic traditions where and it's even um, whether it's in education or or even just contemplative practice is you start to your community expands and the wisdom you draw from isn't the last you know news cycle or blog posts or even you know modern writers uh, and thinkers and you start to expand even your mode from this kind of discursive literalism of, of, of the way we think now mm-hmm. and your the, the modes of expression go back to the cloud of unknowing seems more present and rich and real and and poignant and from you know 700 years ago or you go back to Dionysius mm-hmm. and the threads that interconnect with with your own present experience in the contemplative mode it seems to me just automatically expand because the touchstones are spread over such a vast period of time. And so automatically your community in your sense of, of the kinds of voices and time periods you identify with is expanded. But, but within that space as well, on a miniature level, your thoughts are rising and falling but then you you start expanding that out, and the the news cycle rises and falls. The the presidential cycle rises and falls, and then go back further. Uh, empires rise and falls. Nations rise and fall. Um, you know, nationalism as an idea. Who knows? You just stretch that timeline out long enough, and then you're you have you know, the, the time before humans were around. Um, and so that's this notion of abiding within a much broader context than these very minute, temporary, transient concerns uh, that, that our mind is preoccupied with. And then on that timeline, some of the ego projects we have become relativized. Uh, set within that context in are just diminished in their sense of urgency and priority. And it just is a, a, a valuable reorientation. It's the Kairos versus Kronos. Right. So I would, I I would probably situate those a little differently in the sense that, um, that, uh, Kairos is, is like this inbreaking of the timeless in the present moment. Um, and that there is, that is almost kind of from within time accessing the timeless or the transcendent, that sense of spaciousness almost beyond time. Um, so on the one hand, there's this sense of deep time that extends so broadly that we no longer feel it's like a, a, a decentralized, a displaced egocentric relationship to time in the deep time sense, but the, the, the contrast between Kronos and Kairos being 
on the one hand, chronological time, the things that we are concerned in in daily life, in the mountain of tasks and the the 10,000 things around us, and instead in the Kairos moment, this inbreaking of something else that is beyond us and yet to which we are somehow mysteriously connected. Well, I guess one of the last things I wanted to ask you was to, to go into what you mean by the me who acts and the I who sees. And I think this is a, a really interesting differentiation that as we sink into it more fully, we can um, kind of come out of our own um, habitual thought patterns that yank us uh, to and fro, <laughs> yank us with our thoughts and emotions and moods, and can give us a sense of, of stillness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of what you touched on earlier with that idea, that notion of the space mm-hmm. that is cultivated through the contemplative practice, and the a kind of description that hardly even makes sense is we become identified more with the space than the actor who we are observing going about the day. Mm. And there, it's almost uh, the, the, the meter shifts from that radical identification from within my own mind, my mental, emotional preoccupations and concerns to something far more transcendent that situates that within context of everyone else too. It's like this to as much as extent as we can experience a kind of universal perspective, um, unitive seeing it's sometimes called where, um, those concentric identities of self and tribe and, and country and all of those become recognized for the, the kind of conditioned mind stuff they are. And I, I like that interplay in English on the I as a, a some one version of the self and the I in the organ of the body that is able to perceive. Mm-hmm. And there's a shift in the note, the accuracy of perception when we move through my own ego filter of reality in the me that, um, that is so needy mm-hmm. and filters reality through that neediness in shifting toward this transcendent I that, that is not even entirely neutral, mm-hmm. but has a, a graciousness to it, an inherent sort of loving kindness, patience, it's it's as if it's that divine reality that we naturally experience to the extent we're willing to relinquish the other. And would you describe the I as sort of the observer? Yeah, the witnessing presence, mm-hmm. the observer, and and um, it, uh, there is one, another practice of bringing in just um, non-judgmental self-observation into everyday life uh, as being a, a transformational practice. We think so much in our dualistic frame of mind 
we think of going from um, evil thoughts to good thoughts to from being a villain to becoming a hero. Whereas the actual quality of the divine space seems to be very neutral most of the time with an acceptance that isn't flummoxed or bothered or um, uh, moved. Uh, it, it, it can be enthusiastic. It can be joyful. It can move into those, those kind of higher, very positive states. But much of the time, um, you know, the, the, the Buddhists call, have this term, the middle way. Um, and I find when I am at my healthiest and dwelling in that, that divine space most um, readily and apparently, the experience is just an openness and a sense of having found the neutral gear. And, and the thing about um, kind of going around on a default of judgment, I know this is this is how I've experienced it. Maybe you can give an example of how you've experienced it. When I've been living out of wounded center, which is basically most of my life, <laughs> I'm going to be honest, um, right. is is kind of um, because I because there's been a lot of things that have that I've felt in fight or flight about you know, most of my life. So I can be really yanked out of my observing eye and kind of go around and be like, well, that was a stupid thing they did. And that person's fat and lazy, you know, just kind of going through my head with this, with this mental nonsense or judging mm -hmm. myself in the same sorts of ways. It tends to be super negative. Occasionally it's positive, but it's just kind of this commentary and it's, it's a, it's opinions, it's perceptions, it's judgments, and it's all based, it's all coming from these, these those three wounds, wounded centers that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And when I'm doing well and I'm not attached to those, and I can just see everything is just non judgmental, neutral. It's just like, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And there's nothing tied to it that has decided what it is. It's more curiosity. Mm hmm. I mean, uh, again, that that term the, the East has, and when it comes to this this level of consciousness, they just are a little more advanced than us Westerners. But they've got that term beginner's mind, mm -hmm. and that's that's what it feels like is just sort of primary perception that can be like child uh, childlike mm -hmm. um, awareness in a child's eyes of taking notice mm -hmm. and giving thanks for. Stuff that when we are stuck at that judgmental layer, that is our default, mostly as adults, like you said, that we don't have access to that level of sort of persistent gratitude of uh, the, the things we take for granted, this tree, this flower, this light that seems to be that, that the, the mystic and the poet's mode that, that they can take notice of and and get out of that 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 default sort of layer cake of consciousness that that assumes all those layers are are automatic and that that sort of poisonous frosting on top of of evaluation that that is is automatic and and you're absolutely right the only 
component that has allowed me to be aware of those layers of the the initial perception of something, then the mental categorization of that thing, and then the evaluation after that, that, that natural automatic process is ongoing contemplative practice. And if I don't do it, I'll fall right back into it. And, and really, um, and it, I'm assuming it might be the same for you, but it's, it's the practice, but it's also the, the opening up of the heart to the love of God. It, mm. it, and not, and not like an image of, I'm not picturing an image of God here, but I'm just kind of like the ground of being as God is, and just the source. Um, which is, which is, I think, the, the project of God, you know, to, like the calling home, like that's kind of, the point, you know, as as we mm-hmm. as you talked about mm-hmm. Dante's journey, and we're journeying home. We're eventually, journeying, I think, as Henri Nouwen says, you're journeying to the to the uh, to your own heart, to God's home. So it, it really can't happen with all those with all that baggage and all that stuff in the way, you know, clouding it and, and obscuring the love that was already there. Yeah, the, the, the line from several teachers that comes to mind as you're saying that is our, we are being invited or challenged to love reality just as it is. And that is patently impossible if we're stuck in evaluation mode. Because we'll have opinions about it. <laughs> As we sort of get toward a conclusion, I wanted to see if there was anything in the book we wanted to draw out specifically to mention to potential readers as they, um, what they might expect or in particular you'd like them to notice about the book or anything else. Sure. So two things in particular. One is um, just as in uh, the, the tradition of reading the Divine Comedy, most people read the Inferno, some people read the Purgatorio, and few people read the Paradiso traditionally. And trouble is interesting, but we also don't want to get stuck there. Um, the the, the uh, psalm that comes to mind is, is um, Psalm 22, has that line in it that Christ is is to have said from the cross of my God, why God, why, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. It starts off there and then it ends in this psalm of praise. Mm. By the end, there's this movement and trajectory, and that is. I, I wanted to be intentional about putting the, the 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 challenging stuff, the shadow work, the the dealing with our ego first, mm-hmm. so we can have that kind of framework in mind and be aware of it. But then with that in mind, move through, uh, what does rest look like? What is divine creativity? What is our sense of play and work? Keeping that in mind, what are the lessons we need to take away? What is the core strength that you have based on your own shadow side? Because there's a direct correlation there between you know, with you or I sharing that that same need for affection and esteem, you become subtly attuned to emotional cues and intuitively aware of people's emotional states. From an egocentric perspective, it's because we want something from them. 
But from a, a perspective of awareness, you can find ways to help them along toward wholeness and healing. And so that, that wound becomes a strength. And then the ongoing work in, in, in my third section of the upward gaze of being more and more open and attuned to the divine presence and, and really that, that arc. So a lot of what we focused on has been about the ego work and recognizing that, but, but my invitation to extend is that's not the end of the discovery process. And then the other thing was I wanted it to be accessible and somewhat fun and personalized. So this uh, amidst this sort of heavy stuff uh, in this Lenten season and the book that was the most fun to me to read in, in all of seminary was The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It wasn't a, a one of these tomes of theology. It, it was this, it was light reading, reflective, active, practical, transformational. And so really to me, the meat and the heart of the book is in those exercise sections mm -hmm. after the reading that people get to dive in, pick, if you're in a group, pick a, an exercise that you want to bring back to the group the following week mm -hmm. and to share out. So the, the heart of the matter is the, how people are taking it and using it. I think it would be best done in a group too. As I was looking at it, I thought that would be a lot more um, dynamic to, to do it with a couple other friends or mm. um, maybe spiritual director. But it, it makes me want to ask you, are you going to do lessons on it or have some kind of a um, book club or something like that? Have you thought about doing that? Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to put a, um, I'm working on a course right now that corresponds to the book and that the open question is how much of, mm -hmm. of that to, to do live, like a chapter discussion after, mm -hmm. um, to, to create the videos. And that makes the most sense to me right now. We'll probably put up one, a video that corresponds to each chapter mm -hmm. and then have kind of course enrollment and then do live discussions. Mm -hmm. And then what do you, Think the timeline for that would be like in six months. Or... That will be early, like February-ish of 2020. Okay. Um, well, so where can people find you? Where's the best place? So I, uh, my author page is markthomasshaw.com, but with with Clint and myself and Kim and some of the other authors at Contemplative Light, that is the most regular posting. Um, in, on contemplativelight.com uh, blogs and, and the occasional podcast with uh, kind of guest hosting along with Clint, who's who's on there regularly, and um, we we have a an active Facebook community and um, you know online conversations about where people are in their practice, what they found beneficial, uh, and, and and the movement that they're experiencing. Well, this has been so wonderful. I hope you'll come on again and we can have uh, more conversation because it's it's always enlightening to me and I, I get so much out of it. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Lisa, thank you so much for having me on.
If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.